I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello, ahoy and welcome to Always There, the Howard's Way podcast. I'm Julia Rayside. Thank you for joining me as I navigate through every single episode of the 1980s seafaring soap opera set in the fictional English coastal town of Tarrant. It would be a lonely voyage without you. Joining me today to discuss Series 2, Episode 3, is the journalist, author and broadcaster, Ali Catterall. Ahoy there, matey. Ali, ahoy and welcome back. Hello again. Thanks for coming back. Pleasure. Okay, on with Episode 3 then. So, you saw uh, an episode of mid-series in Series 1, didn't you? I can't remember which one was yours. I did. I felt like I was dropped very much into no man's land, like a punch-trunk parachutist. Or the middle of the sea. (laughs) <laughs> Quite. Um, but yes, I, I picked it up very quickly, as indeed this one. Yes. I thought, having um, having been very naughty, actually, and not watched a single episode since I did mine... I'm, I'm doing my disappointed face. Carry on. Uh, she really is. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to be really in trouble here. But again, I wasn't. It was a, it was a very smooth segue, if that's the, how you pronounce that. I think it's a, you're an autodidact, aren't you? I think it's Segway, but it's all right. Is it Sieg? Or are they the ones you ride around on that have got one wheel and you have to lean? To <laughs> anyway, one of those. So I really love the opening to this episode. I think it was quite unusual. And it was heavily reliant on Simon May and his twittery synth of nature. Because you're kind of panning across the nature reserve. They're setting it up as paradise, even though it just looks like some mud with a bit of water <laughs> next to it. But still, it's nature. The birds are twittering. The synths of Simon May are twittering in a kind of mirroring of the nature sounds. And it's kind of really beautiful and a little bit trippy as a start to a I think it, it's, it's a very serene and almost near cinematic kind of sweep across the, it is. that part of the estuary they call the, the burrows. Yeah. Um, in fact, it reminded me of Werner Hartzog at points. <laughs> I can imagine his voiceover saying, <laughs> we are following the tragic passage of the sailing people into <laughs> existential doom. <laughs> That's literally what it reminded me of too. Yeah, exactly that. I've written this down here, listeners. Tonally, it shares some DNA with the climax of tonight's episode, I thought, which, which is there's something a bit unusual about tonight's show. Yeah. Perhaps something actually quite affecting. And in that opening, I can see a sort of definite sadness that sort of hangs like a gauze oh. over this one. Okay. Mm. Mm. It had quite an effect on you, this episode, I can tell. Yes. <laughs> okay, well then we must crash on and talk about it. 
So into paradise comes a snake. There's a snake in the grass. <laughs> yes, or a bulldozer, yes. or a nasty a horned beast uh, in the form of Charles Freer in CF1, the red <laughs> Rolls Royce. I mean, literally, there should be an Aston saying, trouble in paradise, <laughs> the minute the car hoves into view. Yeah. Uh, so he hoves into view, and clearly the music on the soundtrack. Charles Freer always gets this romantic theme that suggests breeding and class. It's Brideshead, isn't it, After a mint. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ex- yeah, exactly that. No, it is. In fact, the music to Brideshead, that's what it reminds me mm. of. You're bang on. Yeah, I mean, he's a typical kind of Elon Moore villain. Basically. He is, totally. Or an anti-hero, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Someone's so very complacent in his inherited wealth, and yep. he's all just a bit of doesn't really care about the little people quite cruel anyway ken and charles arrive they come out of the back of the red rolls royce and they're wearing coordinating gray leather bomber jackets and wellingtons <laughs> they've literally very sweet they've dressed to match each other i'm assuming ken probably sussed out charles's wardrobe and then went and bought something similar <laughs> but much cheaper because he likes to try and you know dress like he, he dresses this is a thing uh, i learned from tales of the city armistead morpin that gay men who went out in sort of San Francisco in the 60s, they dressed like what they wanted to take home. Oh, if you, wow. If you, want, if you want to pick up like a college professor, you, you dress preppy. You know, that kind of thing. Goodness me. Well, the, yeah. the way, so I think the, Ken, Ken the, Masters is very much following this edict. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I completely agree. It's a very topical scenario, this one. It reminds me of the sort of Doctrine's development and, and Carrie Worth in the 80s. Oh, I know what film you're about to reference. Go on. Okay, shut up, you paralysed freak of piss. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's we're talking about Long Good Friday, yeah, yeah. which again was a kind of uh, study of Thatcherism and embryo, basically, yeah. and gangsters Very much ca- carrying on like businessmen and businessmen carrying on like gangsters. Yeah. There was that kind of symbiosis to it, if I may mm. use such a pretentious word. Please do. I will, More symbiosis. Um <laughs> But again, you know, here we see the very sort of topicality of the 80s of, of someone trying to basically do up a, a marsh, essentially. I mean, there was one down the road from me where I live called Chelsea Harbour, which yeah. is essentially just a kind of swamp with, with dying swans in it. Mm. Uh, and about 1985, the Chelsea Harbour landed like some great big white soulless mothership oh, yeah. in the middle. That's uh, the Harbour Club where Princess Diana used to come out and get photographed having cellulite. Absolutely, just down the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and we all used to take the piss out of it, and it's still, and it's still a soulless ghost town, yeah. essentially, just being built on like that. But again, yeah, it's a very topical 80s uh, subject, you know, bang on cue here. Yeah, completely. And they talk about how they're going to pave paradise and put up a parking lot. <laughs> and, and then Ken makes some kind of quip about it being good for the wildlife if they put a marina there. All those perches, you know, on the rigging of the ships and stuff. Such cynical bastards. And Charles really. sort of looks at him like, Ma? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, not very convincing. They I don't like, give a shit about it. I like the fact that he, he actually also, the romantic dialogue is, in addition to the marina, we could put some chalets down the road. <laughs> chalets. <laughs> How enticing. And then Charles is like, um, a five-star hotel, you mean? Yes, that would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the two men are clearly coming culturally and sort of socioeconomically from different places, but Ken is desperately trying to drag himself up to Charles's level in terms of sort of wealth and the complacency of mm. wealth. Uh, but we know he's going to need to borrow an awful lot of money to do that, as we will see from, later. From Viscount Cunningham. Well, no, so he doesn't borrow the money from him, but Viscount Cunningham, who, more of him in a minute, mm. uh, is going to be a, a key person in he's Charles' got, he's plan. Got, he's going to underwrite some of this, isn't he? I think well, it, yes, it he's going like to it. use his influence as well. Yeah, he's, he's going to use his heft with the conservationists, mm-hmm, which, which he obviously has some sort of cynical kind of bone to throw to them as well. Exactly. So in the back of the Rolls-Royce, having concluded their meeting in the muddy bog, Charles is talking to Gerald, his right-hand man, and he says, I've invited Viscount Cunningham down to the chateau for a few days. Now, the chateau scenes are my favourite scenes. I'll explain why later, but 
some of the funniest setting up of a false <laughs> location I've ever seen. I loved it. So Charles is talking about how he's basically going to cover himself financially and he's not going to have his name put on any of the property acquisitions. He's going to funnel it all through masters, use him like he uses everybody and, you know, just basically stays true to form. And then we leave those two and go to the Urquhart's house where Abby and her baby father, Orin, from America, and Leo, who's like the patsy who's been looking after her for absolutely no reward, right. um, are having a tense discussion. Right. The, the last time I was on the show, Abby had gone missing. Ah. Um, and I speculated about the reasons why. And we I, all I thought, did. It's, it's <laughs> po- yeah, well, you know, it's possibly due to the fact that her father was, uh, you know, was gay and she found out but having said that I've not seen a single episode since apart from this one so I have no idea how that resolved itself ah. so in my ignorance let me continue in this vein go on and say that I think the reason she went missing and now she's back and it seems perfectly logical to me watching this is that in the interim she appears to have built and crafted a time machine <laughs> <laughs> hear me out the she's, first female Doctor Who the first one right <laughs> yeah. she's built a time machine and she's time travelled back to a very specific time and place okay bear with me she's time <laughs> I always do thank you she's time travelled back to New York 1980 holy wow lower Manhattan that's 1980. Years ago in the timeline of this show and Karen. the reason that's why she was missing because she was literally spiralling through the convex corridors of time and space wow. and she ended up in Manhattan in 1980 and she's hung around with people like Brian Eno and people like that. <laughs> and she's managed to pull David Byrne. Right? <laughs> Which, considering he was, frankly, balls deep in the making of Remain in Light, and also Brian Eno's My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, <laughs> is quite an achievement to drag him away from Talking Heads and Why? Flipping Hook and had a baby with him. Why do you think he's using an assumed name? <laughs> well, I mean, is his name actually David in this show? It's Orin. It's Orin, right. Yeah. Well, well, it sounds a bit like David. But basically, <laughs> she's, she, she's pulled David... I mean, clearly it's David Byrne. He looks... It is David Byrne, isn't it? It's David and, Byrne. I mean, it's not, but I don't... No, no it I, is. I feel, I feel like I wanted to say, yes, it is, so it soothes you. <laughs> also, also, for some, also, for some reason, everyone's dressed like they're in a cult. Leo's yes. dressed like he's in a cult. Yeah. David's dressed like he's in a cult. Orange, Abby's yeah. dressed like in some sort of deliberately dowdy, sort of evangelical kind of fashion. She does say that she deliberately dresses dowdy to piss off her mother, who wants her to jazz her image up a bit. She does do it on purpose. But anyway, the three of them are talking, and Orange just mentions really casually, like, I suppose it was expected then, if you knock somebody up, you marry them. Mm. So he just mentions casually that he's waiting to make an honest woman of Abby. So the presumption is, and she doesn't seem to disabuse him of that, it's like, oh, eventually I suppose they'll get married because they've got a kid now but that seems quite a leap for Abby to make when she doesn't he seem did. to even want to look at him <laughs> well I mean he did, he did write about this in Little Creatures I mean, oh really yeah there's a song Dave, David Byrne did yeah, when he a... was rejected by that girl in Southampton <laughs> that's right yeah there's, there's a song called Stay Up Late which is all about his and Abby's baby <laughs> Anyway, it's too early in the morning for me. <laughs> Polly comes in, is a rotten cow to Leo. Like, oh, you're still here. I'll get another cup. He knows when he's not welcome, but that doesn't stop him from. She uh, says to him. Anywhere. She says to him, Leo, you should have been a missionary. He's always trying to help people. So you know, she's uh, like, such a poisonous you know, stupid cow. old help. We don't want <laughs> kindness in the eighties. Yes, exactly. We don't want that. Yeah, that's a laughable quality in her ledger, apparently. Anyway, then we move on to Master's Holdings, where Ken has changed from his uh, leather jacket into a sort of navy and lemon ensemble, sort of more tailored, and clearly he's preparing to go meet someone important, so he's trying to look at There's something extraordinarily pathetic about Ken in this episode. It's quite heartbreaking. I know, he's always chasing after these much bigger dogs, and he's Mm. yapping at their ankles. But, you know, this is what he has to do. He's willing to humiliate himself. He 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 certainly does. But that's the price he's willing to pay. Anyway, he's got a whiskey on the go. It's 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 11am. 
a.m., isn't it? Yeah, basically. almost certainly. The sun is past the yard arm. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> Jan is basically getting ready to go and see her amnesiac daughter, Lynn, in hospital. Mm. Still clearly very worried about her. Ken quite forcefully offers to give her a lift because Leo hasn't turned up because he's busy being sort of emasculated elsewhere yeah exactly she turns down Ken's offer of a lift because obviously it's a bit tricky with Tom and it's all a bit eggy and she doesn't want Lynn to see a row between the estranged spouses there's actually some really good scripting here she says Mm. what's your new secretary like and he says 36 24 (laughs) 36 (laughs) and she says and she sort of laughs you know obviously she has to because it's not 2018 and and she says no 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 what's she really like and he repeats it with with a kind of implied sort of violence actually because he's really the poor bastard. He's sort of dying inside. He is. It's it's a real jealous streak, you know. But he adjusts his behaviour when he's with the more sophisticated characters. So Jan, Charles Freer, so John Stevens. He's if you saw him in the very early episodes with his unfortunate low class girlfriend Dawn, he was just all estuary vowels and yeah. nasty venomous delivery. And he, he was quite brilliant. The performance is great because he just switches it up. He makes himself more appealing to a more refined sort of person in a way that he thinks will ingratiate himself. He's a very sort of Mike Lee kind of character. Yeah, very. Oh, very. Aspirational, like, Mm. wouldn't believe, kind of stuck somewhere in the middle and always wanted to reach up. He also, I've got to say this, he also has a really good bit of uh, laugh acting. And twice, when he's on the phone, he goes, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And he does it again later. (laughs) One of Stephen Yardley's trademarks. He's really good. He just makes this because it's quite a hard thing to do. He could just make him an out-and-out bastard. Yeah. And in some scenes, he just pushes that button and he does it. But the way he can just reel it back in enough to be charming, to convince people to do what he he's, wants... He's a great actor, I've got to say. He's a terrific actor. Mm. Yeah, and there are many terrific actors in this show. So we see them kind of have a little kiss after he says that his new secretary is very sexy. We don't meet the secretary yet. And then we move on to a huge, very posh castle-looking place, which clearly turns out to be the Chateau. And we know it's a chateau because a man comes to the door when Charles Freer's car pulls up. Bonjour. And he is called Pierre. <laughs> Hello, I am called Pierre. <laughs> and, um, and they talk in French for quite a long time without subtitles. I didn't yes, have a I clue what they it was, were saying. It was, it was pure French. How, how was your schoolboy French? Because I did German at school, so it meant nothing to me. Mine was terrible, but I somehow understood everything they were saying. Well, yes, you kind of do. It was all just sort of lots of blah blahing about getting things ready you know, mm. and an important visitor was coming, etc., etc. Et so, Charles has flown to France, although you're thinking, it's not feeling very French. Why doesn't it feel French? Because it's like an estate car driving down a big driveway through immense amounts of drizzle. It's so grey and wet. And the car's kind of approaching the front of this very grand, just superbly OTT building. You, it doesn't you, feel French. You can't see this, listeners, but I'm frowning my head off. He is. The, re- the reason why is because I had no idea that was actually supposed to be France. Oh, well. I thought that just the butler was French. And Charles that was a, said he that's was ridiculous. Going to, he was going to entertain the Viscount at the Chateau. Now you don't have a Chateau in England; you have it in France. Yeah, but also if you're going to have a Chateau in France, we'll just call it the house. <laughs> I mean, what's the? But we'll find out later. Not much later. Why I didn't feel that French? It's not in France. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ken, back with Ken Masters. He's in his office. Leo is on the warpath. He bursts into the office and demands that Ken tell him what the bloody hell's going on with the nature reserve. And he said local gossip suggests that Ken's going to try and build on it. Ken shrugs and goes, yes, so. And Leo is suddenly fired up with the zeal of a thousand Greenpeace volunteers. (laughs) He's the mouse that roared. He is. The worm that turned. He's going to stop him. And he says to Ken, it's all about profit with you people, isn't it? And Ken looks rather wistfully towards the camera and says, yes, 
and loss. Because obviously he's aware if Leo's again him, then he's going to have a hard time with well, Jan. Like because being, Jan's children are very important to her. Be like being mauled by a guinea pig. It? <laughs> it's like, no, I will stop you. He's Just incredibly back, back mild mannered. In yeah. Cage. So Ken and Leo never really did get on anyway. He doesn't like the fact that this slimy greaseball is smarming up to his mother. Mm. Um, More than smarming. Well, indeed. So, no, that was never going to go well. This is another obstacle in their uneasy relationship. And then, now this was one of my favourite scenes. Then we cut to Avril and David Lloyd, who is uh, a man who's trying to offer her a job with his company, Ralton Marine. Ralton Marine are going to make the boat that Tom designed in the boatyard. Mm. So, you know, they're all sort of working together anyway. And he's noticed that she's just shit hot at absolutely everything. And he wants to poach her. But they walk past the street sign, so of course I looked it up. But they're in Southampton in a road called Blue Anchor Lane. Wow. And it's really pretty, sort of cobbled. There's incredible stone buildings, then loads of Tudor buildings. It's just really picturesque. Yeah. And it turns out they go past a 14th century building called a Postern Gate. I wow. looked it up. Apparently, you can go and visit it. It's very nice. Is yeah. there a blue plaque there saying this is where episode three of Well, there should two. be. Well, yeah, shall we motion for it? But this is quite a location-heavy episode, as we'll see in a minute, because the chateau's back. But yeah, they were all over the shop. Normally, Howard's Way kind of stayed in, you know, one or two different places, and then the rest was studio in Birmingham. But this, mm. this hops about like anybody's business. Wow. Anyway, Avril is kind of demurring. David really wants her to work for him. Just before the end of the scene, as they're getting into the car, he suggests maybe she could work part-time at the yard and part-time for Welton Marine. He's trying to give her any possible inducement to come I'm glad you him. got so much out of it, because in my notes I just wrote, their eyebrows are amazing. <laughs> they are amazing, though. Mm. I mean, those eyebrows now would be considered to be pretty much on yes. the trend. She always had the very best eyebrows, that's for sure. So we leave them. It's never quite clear why they've put them in this unusual location, but nevertheless, it looked very nice and I enjoyed looking it up. Oh, so good. thanks. Um, <laughs> so next, obviously, it's a helicopter. This is funny. I'm sorry, but it is funny. It's a helicopter which purportedly is flying the Viscount. Well, I don't believe it. <laughs> What's he called? Viscount Cunningham. He's flying him into the chateau for a sojourn with Charles. So Charles can sort of glad hand him and ply him with wine and try and get him on side. On the side of the helicopter... <laughs> It's called it's Trent. a sign saying Trent Air Services. <laughs> I looked them up. They're based in Bedfordshire. <laughs> you can learn to fly with them. At least you could in the 80s anyway. You're like, you've gone like, man, you should work for MI6. <laughs> well, you know, I just think I'm serving the listeners of this podcast by finding out the details. I'm getting to the actual meat of the matter. And that's what's important. Yes. Um, so it turns out if you Google Howard's Way French Chateau, you, the first entry you get is Waddesdon Manor, Buckinghamshire, which is where they filmed it. And actually it was designed by one of the Rothschilds, the Rothschilds commissioned it mm. because they wanted something that looked in the style of a French chateau in yes. this country. So it saved them, obviously, thousands of pounds taking a crew to France. They could, I don't know, they could have stuck some trickle-alls around or something or a couple of onion sellers. It just didn't really, didn't really quite save France to me, but there we are. And it turns out when he gets out of the helicopter, Viscount Cunningham is... Yes, it's, <laughs> it's Victor Meldrum. It's Victor Meldrum. It's very odd. You know, again, this dates it. It's taking us back to a time when Wilson essentially only played steely, wily, patrician kind of characters. Yeah, and he who, put a very posh voice on who, but, 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 you know, back then, Wilson was the butt of nobody's jokes. Mm -mm. You know, if anything, everybody else was the butt of Wilson's jokes. Uh -huh. it, it's, you know, Victor Meldrum, you know, watching this was such a departure yeah, from yeah, the sort yeah. of stuff he used to do. Yeah, he was high status characters also, yeah. wasn't he? He wasn't one of those lower status people. No. So Richard Wilson gets out of the helicopter with seven plums in his mouth <laughs> and for four for four for fours all the way up to the front door and they go in into the chateau except we never see inside the chateau because presumably it's a national trust property and they weren't allowed in you see, <laughs> so you see, you see a tiny the bit of the hallway yeah. yeah exactly yeah. but you see them in That's the garden a lot. a lot sort of being brought champagne in the garden mm. 
whether they're cold or not tough like you can't come inside <laughs> and then back to the boatyard where Avril is enthusing to Tom about how they could plan to expand um, he could design a whole line of boats that they could then mass produce and put themselves on the map they always talk about putting the boatyard on the map yep. I think Henry VIII did that I think he had a boatyard down there <laughs> no he did genuinely where it was filmed at the elephant boatyard which is the real, still a real working boatyard yes. I went there it was amazing apparently on that site there was a boatyard that purportedly some of Henry VIII's fleet was built at did he have six boats ah oh, no more than six actually yeah he yeah. didn't divorce or behead. No. Oh, you see where I'm no. lamely yeah, no. going with it. I was just trying to steer you away from that, like a boat from the rocks. Feelings, <laughs> <laughs> your lighthouse. I, I, I already crashed. <laughs> oh, my, my no. lighthouse was not working. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry. And then over at Relton Marine, Jack is spending a day in a suit. Very unusual his... look for Jack, I've got well, to say. Well, no, it is. Yeah. He doesn't only get that smart, does he? No. And this is where he drops the massive clangor about wanting to cross the Atlantic in the Barracuda. Yes. Basically, this is an entire PR exercise for the Barracuda mm. um, to send... I don't know how you feel about this, modern PRs listening, mm. but what you do is you send an old alcoholic man <laughs> out into the middle of the Atlantic yeah. on a big, posh boat. Yeah. I don't see so any problem long. with that. No support vessel. No support. Just off he goes. Yep, off he goes. Call us when you get to New York. Yep, I think, I think we're done, Dustin. I think that's a plan. It's absolutely mental, isn't it? Yeah. And the idea that, okay, one that he'd suggested, that's pretty likely because Jack's a big head and it's, it's totally in character. The idea that a huge corporate mega company would then go, yes, this seems excellent. <laughs> Not like, no, it's okay, we'll get a professional sailor. I don't or we'll know. get someone who's yeah. an Olympic or someone who's crossed the Atlantic already. Or, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, you, random guy in a sweater. Yeah, you should go. Brilliant idea. I, I, I laughed till I wept at that. <laughs> just just my mind spiralling out into visions of him this old alcoholic man adrift in the sea I, I won't spoil it for you but don't worry the way it plays out is actually quite clever and it's not what ends up happening mm. something else happens that's even more brilliant so we're back to the yard Tom is still drawing pictures of boats that don't really look like draftsman's pictures they're just like lovely doodles <laughs> he spends a lot of time doodling yachts but not so you could build them or anything just so they're nice pretty pictures Avril is surprised when Jack comes back from the board meeting much earlier than planned and he drops the bomb that he's going to cross the Atlantic on his own. Yes, and no one at any point said, I don't think that's a very good idea. No, well, I mean, you know, the words are had and uh, Tom actually does think it's a good idea. Avril's obviously sceptical and worried about her dad, you know, for all the reasons you've already said. And he says, the barracuda is unsinkable. Or maybe Jack says that. And she says, so was the Titanic. (laughs) So, you know, they're setting this up for a disaster. Paradise is going to be bulldozed by (laughs) evil frackers and developers. And this boat is clearly going to sink. That's been flagged up here. Ultimately, however, he says he probably won't go on the barracuda. And his reason why is because I hate drinking out of plastic cups. (laughs) And you think, you know what, Jack? That's a lie. That's a great reason. That, but it's also a lie. You're an alcoholic. You drink out of a... A shoe. <laughs> yeah, a shoe. You, you, you drink out of a coracle. You, you, you drink out of a lawnmower if it had an aperture yeah, big I enough to so. pour booze through. I mean, he just yeah. he doesn't care. No. He's, he's vaguely reformed at the moment. He hasn't been too pissed for, for a while now. But, uh, you know, he's always prone to going back to it. I was amazed he managed to get a suit on, quite honestly. <laughs> him, so. Get the arms in the right holes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back at the Howard house. This is really sad. So poor Lynn just looks absolutely terrified i think she plays this amnesia storyline so beautifully because she's got to just a lot with her face and her eyes doesn't say much she's frankly catatonic but I she's mean, so fragile and she's so frightened and she's basically brought home because the hospital have done everything medically they can for her 
and her family are just you know so worried about her and she doesn't know who they are and she doesn't recognize the house and she just asks where's my um father because she can't really remember what she called him mm. she plays it really affectingly i think really beautifully um, we, we get moving to 1986 now, so fashion's really reached its tipping point. It's mm. gone from being, oh, no, some of it's all right to, oh, Jesus Christ, what, what are <laughs> any of them wearing at any point in this show? But, you know, I love it all the same. Back at Jack's house, um, he's pouring Kate and him a drink, so clearly he can drink moderately again. Yeah. But, you know, I imagine he's trying to steady his nerves because he's just promised to do something absolutely ridiculous. Got the DTs. And he talks about how he's perhaps a little bit nervous about crossing the Atlantic on his own. Yeah, really? In a bathtub with a stick coming yeah, out. Yeah, maybe complete, should have thought about that. Complete insanity. And then back at the Chateau, there's a walk the and house. talk past some very grand fountains. Charles and the Viscount Cunningham are doing sort of a West Wing walk and talk through the gardens. Not, not as frantic as a, as a Sorkin one, but, you know, they're having a gentle stroll. Um, again, presumably because the gardens are lovely and they can't get inside. <laughs> um, and it's where Charles kind of plants the idea that of course he's very concerned about the environment when literally he would strangle a seagull <laughs> if it got in his way the way yes. of his bulldozers so you know he manages to put on a good front there and the Viscount seems convinced and is offering you know offering his backing essentially and perhaps his influence and then we go back to the Urquhart household where Leo is coming back to see Abby I guess and Polly answers the door always rather unenthusiastically when Leo turns up yeah Polly hates Leo oh she hates him so much she hates how he cares all the time it's just so yeah. <laughs> so nice so Leo's essentially come to see Abby because he knows that she will be as upset as he is that bloody Ken Masters is going to pour out of concrete over all the birds and just kill them mm. at, the, at the nature reserve well, well, so putting ministrations on their mum exactly well exactly it's all a bit hamlet isn't it yeah ken's effectively killed his dad yes. in on his mum and now he's gonna just crap all over his happiness leo becomes hamlet for me at this point i was waiting for it to happen and now we have <laughs> he wants to kill ken and by god he's going to <laughs> so abby is incensed as he thought she would be because she you know has the same sense of justice that he has deep down and so she said she's going to help him launch a campaign to stop the development before it gets going. i love abby yeah, she's kind of warmed up this episode. I know, I don't mean Abby, I mean Lynn. Oh, Lynn. Sorry, I'm still thinking about Are you Lynn. Thinking about poor Lynn. Sorry, oh, so my my, sorry, my brain's got confused. For a minute, no, no one's actually ever professed love for either Leo or Abby. I, don't, I couldn't give a donkeys for Abby. No, or, dear. Or, I care more. See, about... I like Abby in this series because she becomes a little bit more proactive, and she's a mum now, and she started off just being this depressed teenager, and now she's actually got <clears> something about her, so she's got something to get her yeah, teeth into. Yeah, I'm just impressed she got, she snared David Byrne, that's all I, I, well, I, I think mean, about Well, I mean, clearly her. she's got something about her if someone of, of his yes. standing is interested. I wonder if they're still together. Anyway, so. <laughs> back at Ken's flat, Jan's clearly been there for a, a sneaky overnighter, because she's padding down his spiral staircase with no shoes on. He almost um, shows his sausage and veg, doesn't he? I beg he? your pardon. His dressing gown sort of just flies open as he sits down. I did not notice that. Oh, yeah. <gasps> well, I, well, I t- well, I was watching it on my home cinema. Oh, really? And I can it's tell quite you that- big. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was 16.9. Holy wow. Yeah. <laughs> It reminds me of the time, um, uh, if, if you're a big Blue Peter fan, uh, Simon Groom, an 80s era presenter of Blue Peter, he now lives on a farm in Derbyshire where his dad used to farm the land. And there's a and b there and you can go and stay. It's absolutely brilliant. He's so lovely and his wife runs the B&B. It's amazing. But he came down to breakfast one day when I was there like, in one of those quite short dressing gowns. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't look. We just talked about antiques without making eye contact. It was really weird. <laughs> but he was completely lovely and they were delightful hosts and I recommend you go. Mm-hmm. It's in Dethic. Look it up. It's lovely. I will. Anyway, so yes, Ken is robed. She's getting dressed and he grabs her playfully and pulls her onto his lap. 
it's quite a saucy moment mm. and he's talking about you know where he fits into her family and her life and he sort of says and this is very ken but very advised he wants to integrate with her family he wants to get on with the kids he wants to be a father oh, to them God. bearing in mind like one is about 22 and the other one's sort of 19 mm. that's i mean come on tom says to him later at the bar of the jolly sailor like, you know you've got no idea about children if you think you're going to be in any way their mate when they're in like young adulthood it's that's an a... extraordinary scene when ken and, and tom are at the bar mm. like two old scrawny lions who've seen better days <laughs> I and mean, albeit tom looks like he just tear Ken's face off with a single swipe. <laughs> He's got a bigger mane, let's face it. Yeah, but there's, um, there's an exchange where Tom says, you're very free with the names of my family. Oh, I know, I love that line. And Ken says, well, I, I hope to be part of the setup one day. And, and, and Jesus, you know. No, no, no. I mean, just, just, really the, just the shiv- really... I mean, it's like Cuck Central around here, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's an incredibly sad, pathetic scene. Ken totally misunderstands his place in things. And then, then there's a kind of foreshadowing of a scene to come in which Tom says... All we, and this is extremely moving, I thought, all we have is the love and closeness we shared over a long, but this is talking about his children. I know. I was privileged to have their young love. Their young love. Their <laughs> I found that quite, it's like such an old-fashioned way I was of expressing privileged, I was privileged to have their young love for over two decades. And then he says, where do you come into it, Mr. Masters? Yeah. And Ken Masters was genuinely befuddled. I know. Like, like he hadn't actually thought of it. But he's, you know? he doesn't know. His focus is quite laser-focused on Jan. Yes. He just assumes everything else will fall into place if he loves her. But he's being naive, Ali. No, no, he is. Oh. A- again, it's an incredibly good piece of acting. I really have to take my hat off to Stephen Yardley, who plays Ken Masters. <laughs> Love him. So we, in between those two scenes, we do get a brief return to the Relton boardroom where Avril goes in and expresses her dismay that they've agreed to her father crossing the Atlantic on his own. And they they then say, we've kind of already announced it, so he can't pull out now. (laughs) We've just sent him to his death. Yeah, that was a bit quick. (laughs) Sorry, can we not do something about it? No, okay, fine. Off he goes, just pack him off. He was was probably only got about a couple of years anyway. Just 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 pack him off. Then you get the lovely scene in the Jolly Sailor between the two men locking horns in a very kind of mild-mannered way, but they are locking horns. And then we return... A final time to Le Chateau, where, once again, they're outside, they're in sort of wicker armchairs being served champagne by Pierre, and the Viscount is querying uh, the status of the nature reserve as a nature reserve, like, is it or isn't it a nature reserve? And apparently the loophole that Ken has discovered is that it was scheduled to be uh, earmarked as a nature reserve, but the paperwork was never done, so... You know, it's kind of, it's, it's up for grabs, basically. There's a bit of a land grab going on here, and they definitely exchange a sort of pantomime villain look between them. Oh, you, yes. you, you get the impression that Viscount isn't exactly playing with a straight bat either. Not at all. If they had moustaches, they'd be twirling them like Yes, brilliant. indeed. And then back at Masters Holdings, Jan is on the phone to Claude, another Frenchman. There are a lot of French people in Howard's way. She's on the phone to Claude, the fashion designer. Ken is hovering in the background because he doesn't like Claude, never has. Sexy French man muscling in on his woman. Jan is essentially the only adult in this entire series. I mean, she's practical. She's focused on saving the business. She was the only is... one who was really worried about Lynn losing her memory and hitting her head and not being very well. Yeah, it's, it's... Nobody else seemed that bothered. The men in the series come out looking like absolute arseholes most of the they time. They often do, don't they? They're either kind of not quite managing to do basic things like in the last series, Tom and Leo couldn't cook dinner between themselves and they dropped it on the floor and it was all a bit haphazard. Or Yeah, and they cock things up emotionally all the time in relationships. All the men in this are so terribly bad. But yeah, I th- but I think it's quite nice because the women get to come to the fore a bit, which is, you know, for the 80s, you don't expect. It's almost a kind of role reversal. I mean, mm. while, while Jan is focused on saving the business, which seems to be just slipping into the mud, Ken has just fallen into this kind of mopey reverie. 
he's just so focused on trying to advance himself yeah. that he'll just borrow more and more money and he'll ignore the danger signs but this is why he's successful in business ultimately because he'll just have that risk-taking attitude that was so admired in the 80s Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Anyway, so she's on the phone to Claude, the fashion designer, who it was revealed in the last episode on the front of a local newspaper, weirdly, that he was going to marry one of the top figures in French fashion. And Jan was worried that that meant she wouldn't be able to use his designs anymore. But it turns out on the phone, he's not going to marry after all. And then Jan says, as an aside, he's just not marriage material, which comes to be quite hilarious when we consider what happens later. No spoilers, but wink. (laughs) And then Ken is not being entirely committed to funding the fashion business. Like he hasn't given her a definite yes. And that's really grinding her gears because she just wants to know that she's got the green light. She's got the designer. Can she just get on with it now? She knows she's going to make a success of it. But Ken is sort of slightly withholding his final say-so. Back at Jack's, there's a brilliantly creepy scene. Suddenly we're back to, like, sort of noir or, you know... Well, it's it's Dickens. Yeah, it is very Dickens. Because I haven't been watching the the, the series, unfortunately. I have no idea who this is. I know his name is Richard. All I know is that suddenly... Actually, it's Dick. Dick. (laughs) Even better. He looks like a real ghoul. I mean, he looks like something out of Tales of the Crypt. Yeah. He has maggoty eyes bulging out of a kind of skeletal face. It's horrific. He is an incredible actor. Apparently... It's like Great Expectations. I don't know who this is. The actor's name is Oscar Quittack, and apparently he still is living somewhere (laughs) in the British Isles. But he looks dead when he's there, and that was 40 years ago. He had the most incredible character face, like, just incredible. So his plotline 
in very brief summary, he turned up like a bad penny after 25 years. He'd been living abroad. Charles Freer somehow managed to track him down. He had a reasonably legitimate claim to the boatyard. He was formerly Jack's brother-in-law. Jack married this guy's sister. Has this already been established in the series? His plotline is effectively just coming to an end now. So he took them to court and tried to get the boatyard off them. He lost because Charles Freer's ditched him because he didn't help him uh, complete this uh, nefarious scheme he had going. He can't get back to where he was living. He's got no money and he's bothering anybody he can uh, to try and give him something. He's basically come out of this whole deal with nothing. He was hoping to come out of it with a lot of money. So he's very bitter. It's absolute Dickens, isn't it? It's it's, 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 it's great expectations. So there's a power cut. He comes into the room with a candle... And then a voice says something, but I can't remember what he says. Did you write down what he says? No, but I did write down how he pronounced Jack Rolfe's name, Ooh. which was very interesting. He says, I'm going to see you get your desserts, Jack Rolfe. And he sounds like Scooby-Doo. He has a very unusual... Jack he's Honestly, he's such an unusual actor, but he's so... You can't take your eyes off him when he's on screen. He's very unpleasant. He's very creepy. Uh, the candle lights on his face, which does mm. really kind of leap out of the darkness at you. It's quite scary. There's something very John Thor about Jack in this sequence, I thought. Yeah. Well, something he, very he sort of sweeny. Yeah. He really grossed it up because he alphas this guy out of his front door, basically. Mm. He's clearly there to try and, you know, put the willies up him and scare him. And in the end, he just ends up sort of sneaking out like a, you know, like the interloper that he is. Jack gets rid of him. He's like Gollum, isn't he? He just exactly like slinks Gollum. out. Or Uriah Heep. It's, yes, yeah, it's that, yeah. isn't it? So he's a totally objectionable character who's just out for anything he can get. And now he's got nothing. Well, that's why he's turned up again this episode. He's determined to get something for his trouble. Anyway, back at the Howard house, Jan suggests taking Lynn shopping. Lynn looks less than enthusiastic. <laughs> well, you've got a nice new haircut. Why don't we get some clothes? And Lynn's just like... Why don't you get yeah. some clothes like I'm wearing? You know, well, why do you look so bloody catatonic? Like, it. you must be joking. Well, I mean, you know, the very fashionable clothes back then. The all designer stuff is where most of the budget went. Then Tom arrives and Lynn just gets very upset and says she's so sorry and she, she didn't mean to make it hard for everyone, but she just can't remember anything. She plays it so beautifully. And then Tom, of course, says, last ditch attempt, let's try and get your memory back. Would you like to come sailing on the flying fish? Oh. And Lynn just kind of goes, yes, I suppose so. But she doesn't realise the significance of it. Yeah. And he doesn't know if it's going to work or not, but he knows it's worth a try. That was the place where she was happiest. That's the place where he's going to try and get her back to in yeah. her mind. So the plan is set. They're going to go sailing back at the yard. Jack and Bill are talking about his ill-fated mission across the Atlantic. And then he gets onto the wooden boat that he is repairing. He needs to take it out for a test before they give it back to the owner. It also gives, it gives rise to the classic quote... <laughs> the starboard diamond is as loose as a fallen woman. Oh, I know. I like that line. That was one of my faves. Yeah. I like any, any techie sailing talk. Is, is is all very saucy to me. I love it. <laughs> um, so yeah, he takes out this wooden boat on the, the quite choppy looking sea. Um, it's always choppy it's always grey and horrible yeah no I mean it's often grey and horrible let's be clear but he looks very confident in charge of the boat he looks capable he looks like he could probably cross the Atlantic with it I don't know that's not the boat he's going to cross the Atlantic with incidentally but it's also uh, that was for about 10 seconds so the music just before the end of the sailing sequence goes a bit sinister which tells you perhaps everything won't be alright there's an awful lot of incidental synth music this episode oh Simon May is having the time of his life it It started with those twittering birds and it just gets better and better Mm. he was responsible for all the music through Throughout the episode, not mm-hmm. just the theme. No, I noticed. It's, it's, it's alluded involved. to in the credits. Yeah. Now, the next cut is to the racetrack. Right. I am already in this series with three episodes in. I'm so sick of the frickin' horses. Right. I don't care about horses, I care about boats. Can I'm, I'm going to get rid of the horses. I'm, I'm going to show you what I've written down here, actually. Okay. Look at that. It says, 
Bit of a waste of time. Don't know why they bothered. Yeah. yeah. That was in relation to anything to do with Kate and horses. I love Kate. I just don't want to see her at the racetrack anymore. Yeah. They're obviously building up to a gambling storyline where she gets in hock and she can't pay off her debts. And, like, frankly, I'd rather just see her doing nice things, like yeah. with the other characters. <clears throat> it just feels a bit spurious. It's a bit off focus. And there is a series that follows this by the same executive producer called Trainer, where he finally, presumably, gets to oh, trainer. play out his obsession with horses. But I don't Why? care about them. No. They're just boring. <laughs> Not big, stupid, long faces. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of them! Anyway, but- because it's, as a token gesture, we'll just say that she's watching some horses training and, and then she comes back to the stable in her Morris Minor, which is my favourite car, a lovely green Morris Minor, and she complains about how much it costs to feed her horse as dead boy. So back at the marina, Jack is bringing the wooden boat home, he ties her up, and then he has a go at Bill, and that's when he utters the immortal line, This starboard diamond is as loose as a fallen woman. Anyway, so he rants, he walks off, and the camera comes back to Bill for just a second, and he gets to do a very, sort of a punctuation mark, he gets to tut. I like it when Bill tucks. They just land on his face, give him a beat, and he goes... uh, No one tucks like Bill. He's very, very good at it. So back in the boatyard office, Avril and Jack are having a bicker about sort of priorities and what they should be doing. And she tells him to stop pretending to be Sir Francis Chichester for a minute. So he's now presumably getting a bit keyed up by the idea of the glory that he'll receive if he does this crossing. And she wants him to focus on the business, which is what she's really focusing on. But, you know, he's Jack. He's not going to. Back at the Urquhart's house, Leah and Abby are getting very animated, talking about how they could get the support of a local paper in their anti-development campaign. Can I just point out that around this time, they must have gone... Look, where's David? Because he's vanished from talking heads. <laughs> a bit like when Joe Strummer vanished from the clash for a little bit. And grew, <laughs> you're saying if there's like an Agatha Christie lost year where no one knows where David Byrne yeah. went, and you're saying he went to Tarrant. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, I just every scene that he does, I just keep thinking he's going to whip out a beatbox and start going, <laughs> Psycho killer, Keska safe, fa 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 yeah. Well, the thing is, this is how I know it's not David Byrne, because David Byrne slash Orin, He's sceptical when they say that they're going to campaign against the destruction of a nature reserve. David Byrne would be right on board with that. He'd be like, yeah, come on, man, let's go and stick it to the man. And, and Orin basically tells yeah, him he's probably but, being a bit silly. Well, first of all, he's, he's in deep cover. And secondly, <laughs> deep ti- cover. you know, secondly, time travel does things to your mind. <laughs> anyway, the writer of this episode is clearly... Also, <laughs> remember that in the album, the Talking Heads album, Fear of Music, there's, mm. there's a track called Animals. Yeah. A bit ambivalent towards animals. <laughs> Are you saying David Byrne hates animals? Would he punch a horse? Not my words, the words of Julia Natalie Rayside. <laughs> I'm just saying that... <clears throat> Would he kick a seagull? <laughs> I, just, I just can't see it. I just think he spreads joy wherever he goes. He's not that kind of guy. You've got him all wrong. Have you watched True Stories? <laughs> he's not a joy spreader. He's a, he's a dispassionate, ironic observer. Oh, okay, fair enough. Except I mean, he, when he's, he's strangling days. seagulls. Yeah, he's doing that reason to be cheerful thing these days. It's lovely. He just keeps on, like, you know, doing big sing-alongs with lovely choirs of ordinary people on the internet. I keep seeing them. They're so uplifting. We, we, we all change. We all go through <laughs> different stages so of our lives. So this is clearly a dark period in the yeah. 80s. Anyway, Polly comes in, basically tells Leo to go. He realises he's not wanted... Any Anyway, by her and leaves and she says oh good now we can be on famille oh, because Christ. the writer's Fuck obsessed off, with French things okay. this episode it's just all French this and French that <laughs> and then we return to the yard where they've gone for the classic ABBA video structure 
Tom nearest to camera, facing camera, Avril in background, also facing camera, but they're having a conversation. Yes. So they're not looking at each other. It's very sort of old repertory theatre kind it's, of, it's the, you know, it's the old, face hold, the Presidium yeah. Arch, loves, you know. It's, it's the old kind of um, like duck print, you know, Princess Diana back then, sort of hold one of your arms with the other arm. That's right. While gazing into the middle distance. The demure 80s yeah. stance, yeah. And so he's talking about his concern for Lynn. Avril is probably a bit preoccupied with her dad. And then we cut to the shadow. We, we do go back to the Le Chateau one last time because you have to use the helicopter again. Presumably they got it for the whole day from Trent Air Services. <laughs> they could have put like a French sign on the side for God's sake. They could have just whacked something up. They? Just <laughs> so Victor Meldrew, sorry, Viscount Victor Meldrew <laughs> is loaded up onto the chopper and Charles charms him all the way into the passenger seat and waves him off. And then they stay on the helicopter for a bit too long because they always do when they've got a helicopter because it costs them bloody loads. So they give the helicopter a lot of airtime in any episode with a helicopter. And there's always at least one a series. It just gets a disproportionately large amount of airtime because it costs thousands. Mm. Back at the Urquhart's, Shellett is now tr- trying to bark up Gerald's tree because he's desperate for money for a plane ticket to go back home to wherever he came from. Right. He looks like he's made out of brown straw <laughs> and mud. <laughs> what, Gerald or Dick? I don't know anymore. Okay, well, anyway, there's a nasty little exchange between the two of them. Dick Shellett wants money. Gerald's not giving him any because Charles said, don't pay him off because he'll just come back for more and more and more, which is probably correct. And then uh, Shellett utters the horrible like, when you sniff, you smell. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is, I mean, factually true. Polly is obviously horrified at the nasty little man. He's been to their house once before and she found him kind of a bit awful then. Although she got him to talk about sleeping with prostitutes, like in some graphic detail. So clearly she's ambivalent. But um, she doesn't, she's not pleased to see him back, uh, barring the sexy chat. And as soon as they get rid of Shellett, Gerald straight to the decanter, you know, steadying his nerves. Mm. And Polly is sneering and saying, why do you involve yourself with people like that? And he kind of puts her in her place and says, look, all this expensive stuff you like having around you, I have to buy. And sometimes he says, I have to get my hands dirty. Oof. And so that shuts her up. Oof. Anyway, this is the scene next with Sir John Stephen. So Sir John Stephen is the only... Well, actually, now we've had the Viscount, I guess there's two. But he's a proper knob, like an actual one. And he's an international banker, as Ken has told us many times. And he has the power to lend businesses a large amounts of money. He's an associate of Charles Freer. Right. Ken wants to make him an associate too. It's very sweet. Whenever he meets John Stephen, uh, Sir John calls him Kenneth. <laughs> because he doesn't do, you know, shortened versions of people's names. Yes. No, thank you. And so Ken turns up dressed to the nines, smarm turned up to 100 because he's trying to extract one million six hundred thousand pounds. Oh, is that what it was? Which he says, back then must be. I well, mean, I couldn't work out what it was. He says he wants to buy one million six, and I thought six what? Six groats? Well, I think that's that again. Six that's elephants. a really nice character thing. Well, exactly. And also, it's very much Ken wouldn't say, "Could I have one million six hundred thousand pounds, please?" Because he wants to sound cool and like it's no biggie. Yeah. Like just one million six. Well, he has to, he has to cut everything short, like his own name. I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure someone who Ken admires in business with much more wealth than him said that to him once and he thought that's the way that people who <laughs> want to sound confident with money say it so it's i think it's a really nice little point in the in the script there so yes one million six he'd like and uh, so john stephen kind of mulls it over and talks about interest and he's trying he's trying to barter him down just so john stephen's bartering it back up to like two percent or something in the meantime who will look after the owls i mean ultimately you know Ultimately, the, the fate of, of, of the natural reservation, that the wildlife rests in the hands of, these, of these 
of those two <laughs> while being attacked on all quarters and sides by these mendacious fuckers. I know, I know, they've got a lot of opposition, but you know, it's going to turn into an all-out war, and that's mm. that is certain. Now they are pitched against each other. I want to see Leo running with a pike staff at, <laughs> at Charles Frere, just <laughs> shouting and howling as much as he could, probably making noise very much like a gerbil. Well, <laughs> as he runs, like. <laughs> really upsetting stop it well it, well, it will be <laughs> especially when Charles just gets out a gun and shoots him in the face <laughs> well that's that's much more his style that he wouldn't do it himself. I imagine that's in episode else. 7 yeah. yeah he'd get somebody else to do it yeah I'll just say this though the battle over the nature reserve gets way more complicated than just a piece of land okay I'll let that one settle cool so Ken, in principle, gets his money. I really liked the huge painting of a galleon in Sir John Stevens' office. I would like it for my office. <laughs> I'm often looking in like second-hand shops for large paintings Ju- of Ju- Ju- Julie will find it, I'm telling you. She yeah, will. No, no, no. She- she'll eventually find it. If you saw my it. office now, it's just nautical. Yeah. It's quite frightening. I've got one of those like framed pictures of knots. I've got a ship's wheel, a porthole mirror. She, ha- she has a 20-foot high anchor I do. propped against yeah, her wall. And, and, and the entire room is now filled with the 18th century bust of a mermaid. <laughs> it is, well, it's filled with water, actually. She's... <laughs> Essentially, she's recreated the Titanic. Yeah, I have to wear like her a, room. I have to wear breathing equipment to go and do my work now. James Cameron's going down the little <laughs> sub. The nautical theme is getting a little bit out of yeah. hand now. I bought a bosun's call the other day. Do you know what that is? <laughs> uh, no, it's like, it's like a silver whistle that kind of goes boo. And Jesus depending on what, how many notes up and down you do, it can send different messages to your crew. Wow. Yeah, so I'm going to learn all the calls. There's a little piece of paper that tells you how to, you know, make different. It's like Morse code, but not. Well, you know, you know if I'm ever out on a boat and it's capsizing, then I want you in there yeah because you'll know what to do yeah exactly well I've had one sailing lesson now I'm an expert so yeah right (laughs) do you know I was talking about the Docklands earlier I I, I remember when they were talking about the marina at the beginning Mm -hmm. um, I remember what Docklands used to look like it was just Mm. basically a bunch of muddy banks with old dilapidated wooden sheds yeah and a dirty Thames running through the middle of it it was you know precisely at the spot I imagine where Canary Wharf is now yes absolutely and I used to go down there age 11 and with with the cubs and skites And I used to I used to do canoeing down the Thames, and, wow. and, and one day I misstepped into the canoe and fell in the Thames. Ooh! And probably I hope got, you had you your know, mouth shut. I don't know. I've probably got Viles disease. It's, it's that probably accounts for every action I've taken probably. since. Yeah, quite yeah. Honestly, it's not good. The Thames is not full of the nicest things. Well, oh, it's it, raw sewage. I tell you what, it was it was one of the coldest I've ever been. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you can't imagine unless you've actually drowned yourself in the t- how cold the Thames actually is <laughs> it's, it's freezing cold yeah I used to do um, jobs as a film extra as you know when I first she did tried freelancing as a journalist years and years ago and I did a couple of jobs one of which was the not hugely well received Sherlock Holmes adaptation with Rupert Everett playing the drugged up detective so they, they, they really <laughs> played up the opium addiction and it, it opens with a scene of mudlarks scurrying on the banks of the Thames and so I was drafted in to you know sort of like wear drab Victorian dowdy clothes and poke around the mud with a stick and the mud came almost right up to kind of the top of your thighs basically Oof. so the costumes were just saturated in this really black foul looking mud Oof. God knows anything could have been in there syringes I don't know how they did the health and safety and I had to poke around in the Thames mud and it was just it was freezing Blimey. and stank I didn't feel right for a few weeks after that I must say. yeah but it looked good on camera that's the main thing there loads of dry ice it looked I remember good. it you looked completely convincing yeah, as, thank a, as, you. A, as a beach camera I really thought about you know, what it would be like I did <laughs> it was from a great distance I, I can't act to save my life that's why I'm so annoyed with the people in Howard's way um, anyway the money is agreed in principle back at the Jolly Sailor Kate and Jack are talking about money as well and they're having a stroll and I've just put here keep quiet but why have I put that 
The reason you've written Keep Quiet is because of a little exchange between Jack and Kate. That's it. In which Dulcie Grey is being very chatty. You know, she's lovely. And Jack says, I thought we were going out for a quiet drink. That's right. And Kate says, so we are. And Jack says, well, keep quiet. That's right. He can be a bit irascible, but she doesn't mind. She takes it from him because she has a grudging affection for him. It's a very, I thought it was a very authentic kind of mum and dad dialogue. Anyway, back with Sir John Stevens, Charles is now visiting him. They talk about Ken as a very ambitious person. Not necessarily a bad thing, but they sort of point it out. And Charles tells Sir John Stephen to go ahead and lend him the money. Uh, because obviously a word from Charles and he'd just withdraw it straight away because he wants to keep Ken where he can see him and he knows he's quite easy to use if he psychologically second guesses him properly he can always manipulate Ken to do what he wants and then we're now we're building towards the emotional conclusion of this episode do you know what the last five or six minutes of this episode are quite astounding they're lovely aren't they let's let's go on some of my favourite stuff in House Way it's so nice so Lynn and Tom father and daughter are out on the flying fish and she's still looking a little bit lost and she's not quite sure what she's supposed to be doing but she's going through the motions let's let's make no bones about this she has PTSD yeah. And she she plays it extremely convincingly. She does, doesn't she? Um, Genuinely so emotionally affecting that you really great, believe she's lost for a bit. Great, great actress and she's and she's and she's reconnecting with herself via sailing. Exactly, because this is her passion. This is the thing Mm. she loves above all other things. So she um, she's on the boat. She's kind of not really engaging. And then, uh, as anyone who's been on a boat, as I have once, knows if someone says "coming about," uh, it means the big, the big, like poly thing that hangs horizontally across the boat is about to swing across and bash you on the head. So duck and also pull the jib in, etc., etc. Anyway, so when he says "coming about," something kind of clicks in her. And she starts to do the right thing with the rope and it just sort of goes into autopilot, muscle memory, sailing mode. Yeah. So something is beginning to awaken. And Tom doesn't say anything. He just watches, but he, he can see something is going on. And then we go back to the Urquhart's where Abby is changing a nappy just while Oren watches. Clearly, he's not going to actually change a nappy. It's the 80s. It's not a man's job. Interestingly, David Byrne talked extensively <laughs> about child rearing. Did he? Um, or he did he has change many nappies? He did, and he got, you know, one of the stages of talking heads, he got very connected with being a father. Um, <laughs> well, this guy isn't, so again, I'm seeing a huge divide between the deep, guy and the other guy. Deep cover, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, fine, yes, whatever you say. Uh, and then and then David Byrne slightly whinily says, when are we going to get married? When are we going to go back to New York? I know, it's just not very, it doesn't fill you with like desire. And When are we going to make the album naked? <laughs> but then Polly, as she always does, walks in as they're talking about this. I mean, Abby's not, you can see she's not keen, but she's wondering if that's not the best thing for the kid. Who's now, I think they've decided to call William, but I think he's been the baby for quite a long time. Polly comes in and she starts haranguing Abby about having this great, big, enormous, grand pram that she's bought for her. And Abby, obviously, she's an Earth Mother, she's an activist, she's a member of the Green Party, if there is one, Mm. or certainly Greenpeace and CND, and wants to just take the baby around in a sling, because she probably believes in attachment parenting and all that bollocks. (laughs) Um, So she's not really interested. And, uh, you know, once again, mother and daughter, completely on different pages. Back at Ken Master's office, Claude uh, has sent through some of his designs. Uh, They are beautiful. And Jan is extremely pleased with them. And there's a cam- it's always a bit dicey when the camera does a close-up on any designs of anything because they kind of have to look real. Like some of Tom's designs are just mm. him like doodling triangles <laughs> and then some sea underneath. Um, but Claude's does he, does designs he make do the, look like fashion designs. Does he though. make the waves like a series of little <laughs> triangles? Yeah, like, and then draws like, a little like, sun in the sky. Like, like, 
<laughs> it's just it's best not to show it unless you can afford which of course they can't to get a real mm. design in but they must have got someone to do the fashion drawings because they are proper fashion drawings so Jan's delighted with the designs is ready to go on the fashion business but Ken is still not committing to the money and she says to him don't treat me like a child <laughs> and he says I've always thought of you as a woman <laughs> and then she hey. she meets his gaze back and says I meant out of bed. Like, <laughs> get your mind out of the gutter, you dirty yeah. sod. I'm trying to be a business person here. So, you know, she wants to be taken seriously. And some of the time, Ken is quite good at sort of making her feel like she's got this business instinct and she's on the right track. But sometimes he, he likes to patronise her a bit. And she won't stand for that. And he better learn that or... Psh, yeah, mate. You're gone, mister. Beat it, baldy. <laughs> Back on the flying fish. <laughs> We're coming to the end of the episode. It's where it gets really emotional. So Lynn <clears> is just sailing. She's sailing like a dream. She's sailing like she used to. She's woken up. The lights come back on inside her head. And Tom is putting her through her paces and shouting, Jibe! Which I think means, you know, twizzle around a bit. I mean, no, he said jive. He means twizzle around the boat a little yeah. bit in the manner of disco dancer in Yeah, yeah, so do, do some hand jive. Yeah. Which she doesn't. She actually does something technical with the boat instead. So Tom, clearly an idea forms in his head. He's aiming the boat towards the shore and he's not going to go about, which means turn around. Mm. Basically, if they keep going, they'll run aground. The keel will hit the gravel and they'll probably damage the boat. He's unconsciously trying to kill them both. He's risking quite a lot because that boat is the love of all of their lives. It no longer belongs to them. Avril bought the boat secretly in the last series and now it's come out. She's happy for them to sail it whenever she likes, obviously, because she loves Tom. But, um, you know, that will do the boat some damage. If they crash the boat, bad things. Simon, so, Simon May's going nuts at this point. He is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the soundtrack doing? Is it Synth of Doom or is it a bit more upbeat? Or Yes, it's Synth of Doom. It's totally doomy. That. I love it. Anyway, so Tom has aimed the boat for the shore and he's just staying silent and watching Lynn. And Lynn is watching the shore get closer and closer and she looks like she's going to say something, but she doesn't. And then she thinks about it and says, it's going to say something again. She doesn't. She plays it really well. And then suddenly she says, what are you doing? You know, you're going to run as a ground. Swings into action, brings the boat about, sorts the ropes out, and then kind of sits at the back of the boat. I think she's clutching the wheel or she's just, she's clutching the railings. And then suddenly her face unclouds and she's like, oh shit. Oh, hang on. I think it's, I know where I am. And mm. suddenly the memory is back. And Tom is a, a big grin on his face and he climbs across the boat and just enfolds her in his big strong arms and says, it's all right, it's all in the past now. And then Marty Webb sings. And actually, it's the one time that that version of the theme tune really works. And you were in tears, weren't you? I'm in, t I'm in tears now, actually, Aww. to be honest. I, I'm, I'm 48, so I cry in everything now. I, I <laughs> Are cry. you having the menopause? Yes. I, yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. I cry when the sun comes up, I sob. Aww. My heart out when the sun goes down of an evening. That's nice. Um, <laughs> and that had me, and last night that had me in pieces. Yeah. Why so? Why do you think it was had such an emotional impact? This particular episode, I say that, I mean, I've only seen two. Well, I but really this, think you should remedy that, but carry on. Yeah, I, I will now. But this, I mean, this episode was structured so brilliantly. Yeah. With, with such incredible expertise by the writer apart, Lionel Goldstein. Apart from the horse racing, Lionel. So yes, but just the, just the way this episode was structured, just from the very first scene, as I said, there was something very unusual about that sort of almost cinematic sweep. That there was a kind of desolate kind of beauty about the way that this this this. Yes, it was strangely beautiful. Yes, that this episode sort of began. Yeah, and it, you know, and and this, and this scene is sort of callback, or that was a foreshadow to to that. So, so thematically and tonally this entire episode was, was, was of a piece, you know? It was such a beautiful and affecting and moving scene, also acted incredibly well. Yeah. 
And it's great pacing-wise because they're turning a ship around quite quickly because of what's going to happen to Lynn in one or two episodes' time is quite something. And also, just on a personal note, you know, to sort of show the effects of, essentially, yes, PTSD and a woman working her way through that and resolving that and how she's helped to resolve that by someone, yeah. by, by someone who loves and cares for her. It was her. a kind of therapy, wasn't it? But they're quite explicit when Lynn's in hospital. Basically, she slips, falls, hits her head, and then goes into the water. Mm. And she's in the water for 10 minutes before someone, presumably a security guard or someone, pulls her out. So the nurse says when her parents visit her in hospital, not only she's suffering from concussion, amnesia, you know, she's had a lot of water in her lungs, but she also... The, the, the memory loss is probably down to her having some kind of emotional shock. Yes. And actually that's what happens. She finds out the guy she loves is in bed with somebody else, basically. It was very unexpected to hear Marty Webb suddenly sing. And I wondered, was that the moment when they released it as a single? Well, series two, they, I think mistakenly, on the whole, they replaced the jazzy Barracuda end theme with the Marty Webb version. And sometimes, in the, like in this episode, it really works. Sometimes it really takes the energy out of the end of the final scene. I think it was only for this series, and I think Barracuda comes back in series three as a, as a closing theme. But it was it was used for one series, presumably yes, when it was in the charts. I think. Yeah, yeah. it was it was it was most unexpected, most welcome, and, and incredibly beautiful. It was, wasn't it? Actually, I, I heard it with different ears in this episode because it seemed to be such a natural follow-on from what we've just seen it was gorgeous um, anyway that's the end of the episode now you've been making a lot of loose promises about watching more howard's way do you think he will will you go back or will you just keep going forwards now because you've kind of got the hang of it will you do what i did with game of thrones and start in series four and then just keep going forwards and not really needing to go back that's how i watch game of thrones so i think yes i think i think i shall now actually because i'm interested in seeing particularly how the battle of leo and charles Wait till you see what Lynn does next. I mean, that alone is pretty exciting. There's a lot packed into this series. I forgot how busy it gets. Narratively, it gets quite fun. After all the court case stuff, it's a bit boring. It's proper action. And and then speedboats get involved. It's like, it's just actually more sort of high adrenaline and thrilling. I just want to see Richard Wilson fall out of the helicopter. That's not going to happen. Oh. I'm so sorry. (laughs) What, just so he can say the line? (laughs) As he plummets the water. Yes, exactly. Precisely. don't believe... (laughs) (laughs) Now... Ali, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you so much. It really has been a pleasure. I really hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Come and find us on Twitter. We're at AlwaysTherePod. It's always lovely to hear from people. I love hearing tidbits about the filming locations or stories of people who who had some kind of interaction with Howard's Way when it was a production back in the 80s. It only remains for me to say, thanks for listening. Come and find us on Twitter. And Ali Catterall, thank you for being always there. Thank you. My right tit is bigger than my left. I'm feeling quite bereft about its heft. My left tit is smaller than my right. It's feeling quite uptight and so am I frankly dear. Mismatched tits have got me down One points at sky, one points at ground I wish my tits were size the same Then I could swim without the shame It's alright We're all just different sized My tits are just a ticket Just as fine as they are
Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.